Let's pray together. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. If we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. Father, You hold out wonderful promises to Your people in Your Word, and we pray now as we gaze into these wonderful promises that we would see them in their full scope, that we would not lose sight of the path You have called us to walk in obedience which will often be a hard and difficult path. We pray, God, that through these words as we study this passage together, you would stir in each of our hearts and in our collective heart as a church a faith and a faithfulness that follows Christ on the path of suffering and looks to his reward, that is filled with a deep sense of our union with him, that walks the path of obedience with joy, however hard it may be. We pray all these things in the name of your Son. Amen. In the heyday of ancient Rome, in the Roman Empire, there was a ceremony known as a triumph. Maybe you've heard of this. A triumph was basically a massive parade. So uh, a general who had led his forces to victory would return to Rome and they would have this big celebration in his honor. And he would be dressed in a, a beautiful purple and gold toga. He would ride in a four-horse chariot through the streets of Rome as the adoring crowds cheered and applauded him for his conquests. It was a very big deal. You can, you can imagine kind of the, the pomp and circumstance that comes with something like that. Probably the closest analogy we have today would be a championship team having their parade through the streets of their city in celebration of their victory. It's a very big deal. And in the Roman tradition, when they did these triumphs, while the victorious general basked in his public praise, there was on the chariot with him a slave who would whisper two Latin words into his ear as he went through the streets. Two Latin words over and over again. Memento mori. Memento mori. Remember, you are mortal. In the midst of this great celebration... the Romans were well aware of the poisonous power of praise. They knew that in every human heart there is a self-exalting and a self-deceiving pride, a craving that relentlessly longs for exaltation. That actually lies to us that when we when we get it it is like a narcotic in our minds that makes us believe we are indestructible, immortal like one of the gods. The Romans knew that, and so the reminder was necessary. This slave whispering in this general's ear, memento mori, remember you are mortal. In our passage this morning, we're going to see the pursuit of personal glory among Jesus' own disciples. And with that 
pursuit. In light of that, we'll see that the solution to poisonous pride is far more drastic than someone whispering a reminder of our mortality in our ears. Instead, no, we must crucify our egocentric impulses. This morning, we're back in Matthew after several weeks out of it during our Advent season. We uh, took a few months, or not a few months, a month off from Matthew to celebrate and uh, organize our church life around the coming of Christ at Christmas. But today, we're back in Matthew. And so, by way of reminder, the last few uh, passages we looked at in Matthew, Jesus repeated a famous phrase of his that the last will be first and the first last. The last will be first and the first last. He said it several times, and it's this, kind of this, this summary of what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven while now living in this world. What, what does that look like? Well, remember, it means that the last will be first and the first last. And Jesus has explained that. He's repeated it. He's illustrated it. And his disciples are very, very slow learners. They almost treat it like a, a fortune cookie saying, where you read it, okay, cool, that's great, throw it over my head, totally forgot what it said. That's basically the disciples here. So Jesus gives them one final and definitive explanation. What does it mean that the last will be first and the first last? This is the last image he wants them to have in light of that famous saying. What does it look like to walk with him in a world opposed to him? So our passage has, has really two halves we're going to break it down into. In verses 17 through 19, we'll see the path of Jesus. And then in verses 20 through 28, we'll see the path of his disciples. That's our, our outline for today. These, these two halves, 17 through 19, the path of Jesus. And then 20 through 28, the path of his disciples. Let's go ahead and let's start with verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way, he said to them. So just note here, we'll pause, we'll get to what he says in just a moment, but just pause and, and notice what's happening. They are going up to Jerusalem. There's a destination here, and this is important. That's not just a random historical detail that Matthew added so that we would, you know, be able to immerse ourselves in the story. No, this isn't just a little bit of irrelevant travel plans. This is the turning point in the Gospel of Matthew. Everywhere, up, everything Jesus has been doing up till now has been leading to this point. We are approaching the grand finale of Jesus' life. He's been traveling around, he's been preaching, he's been healing, and now he sets his face to Jerusalem. And he tells us exactly what will happen there. Verse 18, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. This is the turning point in Matthew's gospel. The path of Jesus is the path to Jerusalem, a path of pain, a path of suffering and death, and a path of resurrection. And to wrap our minds around this promise, this prediction that Jesus makes of what's to come, we need to ask the question, why? Why does Jesus predict his own demise? That's not something people normally do. Guys in their 30s don't, you know, walk around, you know, telling people the circumstances of their impending death. 
That's not a common thing to do. Why does Jesus do it? Well, I can think of at least three reasons why Jesus takes the time, pulls his disciples aside, and predicts what's waiting for him in Jerusalem. Three reasons. Number one, Jesus predicts his death to show his power. He predicts his death to show his power. He is not about to be surprised by what happens in Jerusalem. He's not going to be ambushed. He's not going to be caught unawares. No, no. He predicts the details of his demise down to the the most minute detail. He knows everything that's coming. And, And this is what actually will happen. Spoiler alert. It will be the Jewish trial first where he's condemned. And then there's the Roman trial where he's crucified. That's what's going to happen. That's what's ahead. So Jesus just delivered the biggest spoiler alert of all time. Guess what, guys? I'm going to go here, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise from the dead. Because he's in control of what's coming. It's not going to be a surprise to him. Don't be deceived. Yes, he will be delivered over, which makes it sound like he's a victim, which he is. But Jesus is showing us very clearly he is a sovereign victim. He is a sovereign victim. Nothing is going to happen. He didn't already plan. So he's showing us his his power. Which brings us to the second reason he predicts his death. He predicts his death, one, to show his power, and secondly, to show his purpose. The reason it matters that he's in control, the, the reason that that's important, that his death will be no accident, is because this is what he came to do. This is his mission in life. Jesus' life, it was not like some band going on a tour. Right? You, know, you, you, you go around, you go to different places, you play the hits, people get bored of it eventually, the same old songs, and you retire. That's not what Jesus was doing. He wasn't, you know, I'll, I'll heal here, I'll preach here, and then till the people get sick of me. No, every move he's made, every healing and exorcism, every word he's preached has been one step further along this journey all the way to the cross. He has been marching there to go and die because his death and his resurrection have a purpose. He will grapple with sin and the grave and he will beat them both. So he says to his disciples, see, we're going to Jerusalem. We're going to Jerusalem. This is business, not pleasure. We have a purpose. He has work to do there. Jesus predicts his death to show his power, to show his purpose, and thirdly, to show his people what it means to follow him. To show his people what it means to follow him. Look at this. He says to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. We. He says, I'm going to go suffer and die, and guess what? You're coming with me. You're walking the path too. We are going up to Jerusalem. And this this third reason is what holds this whole passage together. It connects the path of Jesus and the path of his disciples that we're going to look at in a moment. It's what all this is about because ultimately, spoiler alert, the path of Jesus is the path of his disciples. What he's doing is what he has called us to go and do. So let's go ahead and let's move now to our next section, the path of his disciples, verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he he said to her, what do you want? 
She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Now hang on a second. Jesus just announced the spoiler alert of the century. He's going to go die and rise from the dead. And what does he get in response? His disciples start jockeying for the best seats. He's spoken of suffering and glory, but they just want the glory. They're like, okay, yeah, yeah. Can we have a good seat in your kingdom? And it's this mother of two of the disciples that's interesting. It's almost like they had to go to mommy to ask the question. They were too embarrassed, but they really wanted it. These two disciples, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, have their mother come and ask Jesus if they can sit next to him in his kingdom. So sitting next to him is a, a place of honor. Right? So today, bridesmaids and groomsmen will be alongside the happy couple as they're getting married. Right? It's a, it's a special honor. It's a, it's a place that you get to stand. You're, you're important. You get to be with the couple as they get married. That's basically what James and John want. Can we, can we sit right next to you? We want the seats of honor. And it shows they have just completely missed the point of what Jesus just said. They've completely missed the point. The, the reason they miss it, though, is, is very simple and very obvious. They have themselves at the center of their lives. They have themselves at the center. They, they hear, if you will, there's going to be a triumph, right? There's going to be this great praise event. And they want to seat on the chariot. They want to ride. And they're going to leverage their relationship with Jesus to get it if they need to. You might say they're looking out for number one. It's that intoxicating desire that I, me, myself will be exalted, that I get the glory. It's an impulse and a desire that exists in every heart in this room. We all feel it. Our own personal fantasies, our goals, and our griefs are so often shaped around our desire for our own glory. Right? No, no one's New Year's resolution is to make the B team, unless you're trying to not be on the C team, which is what I played on, C team for life. But that's, that's not what someone's goal, right? No, you want the A team, right? You want the best position. You want to be the starter. You, wanna, you want the best seat at the table. Everyone wants to be on top in, in every area of our lives. So we live in front of the mirror. We worry what people will think about how we look, how we dress. We crave attention on social media. We fantasize about career and financial success because we want to be on top. We want the best seat at the table. Like the disciples, too, we are often willing to leverage our relationships for our own gain because we put ourselves at the center of our lives. It's all about me. And that desire didn't begin with Instagram, although it hasn't helped. Didn't start with the selfie generation or with the Roman triumph. Didn't even start with James and John here asking for the best seats. That desire goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. When Satan slithered up to Eve, and what did he promise her? Eat this fruit and you will be like God. So Adam and Eve took their shot at glory. 
No one wants to hear memento mori. We don't want to be mortal. We want to be gods. And notice, brothers and sisters, this isn't something that's just people out there, those pagans, right, who aren't in church on Sunday. These are inner circle disciples of Jesus, James and John. That's two of the big three. Jesus had a closer inner circle of three disciples, Peter, James, and John. This is two of the big three, and they're asking this self-centered question. They want glory, but they have found a way to dress it up in religious terms. Can we sit next to you in your kingdom, Jesus? We know it's coming. We believe in you so much. Can we get a good seat? The poison of pride is just as deadly when we drink it in the pretense of piety. We know how this goes. We all, we all learn in the church, no matter how long you've been in church, you probably have figured this out a little bit. We all know how to do this. We clothe our selfish aims in the garb of religion. Look how insightful my comments in Bible study are. Look how well-behaved my children are. Look how put together my life is. Look at my big theological brain. It's all the same. Look at me. It's the same poison, just in a prettier glass. So in response, Jesus sets his disciples and us on the right path with a very hard truth. Verse 22. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup. The disciples want glory, but Jesus tells them to expect something else first. He uses a metaphor here that might be a little foreign to us. It comes from the Old Testament. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Now, in the Old Testament, there was this consistent metaphor of a cup being symbolic for suffering, typically symbolic of suffering the wrath of God. So drinking the cup meant you were suffering for your sins. You were taking God's wrath on yourself for your sins. And we'll see it again in Matthew 26, actually, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus prays to the Father, let this cup pass for me, because Jesus is about to go to the cross and drink the cup of all the sins of his people. That's what he's facing, and God didn't remove the cup, and Jesus did drink it. So he will suffer the punishment due sin. But when he says here to his disciples in verse 23, he says, you will drink my cup. He's not saying they'll suffer for sin in the same way as Jesus. Because Jesus, the cup he drank on the cross was a unique cup. He suffered for our sins, for the sins of all those who have faith in him. So we don't suffer for our sins too, like Jesus did. So it's, it's more of a generic term here. They will drink the same cup, meaning they will suffer like Jesus in the path of obedience. As they walk with Christ, they too will experience a great deal of suffering. Jesus walked the path to Jerusalem, and his disciples do too. You will drink my cup. Uh, and this is, this is just one of the many, many biblical promises that Christians can expense in, experience, uh, or expect rather, intense hardship in the path of obedience. 
That's what we can expect. First Peter 4. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Don't be surprised. It's coming. Philippians 1. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It's granted. Take it for granted. 2 Timothy 3. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All. Not some. If you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you'll be persecuted. John 16, Jesus says, in the world, you will have tribulation. Pretty straightforward. If you're in the world, you're going to have tribulation. I could go on and on. I actually cut out a bunch of other passages, uh, other promises from the Bible where God promises his people will experience suffering in the path of obedience. I don't want this to be a three-hour sermon of just depressing promises about suffering, but it's there. It's all over the Bible. And it's not just a biblical promise. It's a historical reality. Pick a century from church history. It's there. In the fourth century, Athanasius was exiled five times for his refusal to give an inch on the doctrine of the incarnation. So we just celebrated Christmas, right? Athanasius almost died for Christmas. To the point, there was a famous saying, Athanasius contra mundum, which meant, you know, if all the world's going to deny Christ, Athanasius against the world. He wasn't going to give an inch, and he suffered in the path of obedience. In the 16th century, William Tyndale, who, if you have a Bible in your hands, he pretty much gave it to you. He was the first man to translate the Bible into English, and he was burned at the stake for it. In the 20th century, you may have heard of Jim Elliot. Several of his friends were speared to death in Ecuador for trying to win these tribes to Christ. They suffered in the path of obedience. I could multiply examples. Church history is full of suffering. That's the story of Christ's people for the last 2,000 years. And actually, it goes all the way back to the promise Jesus makes to these two brothers. You will drink my cup. I will suffer, and so will you. And they did. James and John, the promise Jesus makes to those two brothers, we know what happened to them. And once again, Jesus' prediction came true. Acts 12 tells us what happened to James. This is about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Revelation 1 tells us John's fate. John wrote Revelation. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He's not there as a missionary. He's there in exile. For his faith in the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, he's been exiled to this island. James was killed. John was exiled. Both suffered as disciples of Christ. The last will be first, and the first last. Part of what that means is in this world, if you are following King Jesus, if you are a member of his kingdom, you can expect significant hardship. That's just what it clearly says. And so two things. First, anyone who tells you Christians don't suffer, does not love you, they're lying to you. 
and they haven't read their Bible or a word of history. And secondly, the heights of glory, the wonderful promises God has made to His people, which are coming, we'll see them in just a moment, the heights of glory are only on the other side of the depths of suffering. Look at the second half of verse 23. Jesus said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. So the disciples, James and John, right, have, have asked for the best seats, and Jesus explains that those seats, are, they're not his prerogative to give. That's, that's in the hands of the Father. And maybe that sounds like a letdown, like they don't, they don't get anything. That's a bummer. No. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's, he's responding to this specific request for specific seats at the table. But very clearly, he's, he's not denying that all those who love him have a seat at the table in glory. It's prepared for them. His disciples, they, they walk the path to Jerusalem. God has suffering on it for them, but he has also prepared glory. He has a seat ready with their name on it. If, if we were sovereign over our own glory, our own reward, we would have no confidence it's really coming. But if God is sovereign, if he's the one who prepares every seat, we can be sure it is secure and that not an ounce of suffering on that path will be wasted. And we can trust God to divvy up the glory as he sees fit. He has it prepared and he's good. As I said, Jesus' disciples here, they, they heard there's going to be a triumph and they want to ride in the chariot. They just don't want to be a part of the battle that comes beforehand. But Jesus is saying, that's not how this works. That's not how this works. Suffering is always found on the path to glory. Romans 8, For I consider that the sufferings, of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Do you see the pattern? It's spelled out for us. Suffering, glory, corruption, freedom. It's all, it's all across the Scriptures. This is God's pattern. This is how He determined it works. Revelation 2.10 Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Suffering leads to glory. Jesus did not skip step one, and neither will we. The last will be first, and the first last. But that's not where our passage ends. Jesus needs to give his disciples even further clarity on how exactly his path and the path of his disciples are related because they, in just the next verse, mess it up again. Verse 24, And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Now, uh, this is, uh, <laughs> Jesus just explained what the path of glory, which is full of suffering, looks like, and they start bickering among each other once again. And it's, it's not really because the ten care about what's right. They get mad because if the other brothers get ahead, they might lose out. That's what's going on here. It's, it's like getting angry at someone who cheated on a test 
in your class and you're angry because they thought of how to cheat before you did. Right? It's, still, it's the same self-centered ambition. It's the same worldly attitude that James and John have. So Jesus, seeing all 12 of his disciples have this problem, pulls them all aside to chat. Verse 25. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. So here in these verses, Jesus sets up a contrast. There's there's them, these unbelievers in positions of authority. So Gentiles typically in the New Testament uh, can just sometimes mean non-Jews, but here it just means unbelievers, those who are opposed to Christ, right? How do they live their lives in their position of authority? They, they brandish their power for proud and, and selfish ambition. There's the them, and then there's the you, his disciples. This is how it'll be with you. Jesus says, what they do, brandishing their power for their own gain, it shall not be so among you. It shall not be so. To be a disciple means being different from the world. In fact, it means seeing glory in the exact reverse of how the world sees it. You want to be great? Be a servant. You want to be first? Be a slave. Notice he says, among you. This is about our relationships with one another. Remember, the disciples, were, they, were, they were dressing their selfish ambition in the, this cloak of piety, right? It's about, you know, it's really about Jesus, although it's really about themselves, right? But Jesus says, actually, among you, this is what it's supposed to look like. You, this is what it's supposed to be, our relationships with one another as fellow followers, fellow followers of Christ, our attitude towards each other is not jockeying for the best seats. It's not pushing others down to lift yourself up. It's not leveraging your relationships for your own gain. No, no, no. It means living a life of humble self-sacrifice. That's what Jesus demands. A life of humble self-sacrifice. So, brothers and sisters, is that, is that your target? Is that what you aim for in life? Does that describe you? I'm convinced that when we get to heaven and we see Jesus, and we see those around his table, we will be shocked that those with the best seats are those, the ones we never expected. Those unseen soldiers of Christ who didn't have a stage or a title or a, a big theological brain or anything like that, but who just humbly and joyfully served Christ and his people in complete obscurity. Here's a New Year's resolution for you aim for self denial, embrace obscurity, and just serve one another. Stop worrying about what people think or how you'll be perceived or anything like that. Just give your time, your energy, your resources for the good of Christ's people. Even if no one says a word of commendation, because it's not about praise or recognition. It's not about you. And let me just 
give you an encouragement with this. As I was preparing this week and, and praying for you and, and thinking about our church, I was, I was so encouraged personally by the fact that I, I see this in so many of you, Parkway. I'm tremendously encouraged. I even just look around this room. I don't see a room full of self-important people longing to get the number one spot. God has blessed us with a lot of humble self-sacrifice. We're far from perfect, but just, it's just a joy this past week reflecting on so many of you and the blessing it is that God has given you humble hearts. I'm grateful for it. And I'm especially grateful because I believe it, it springs from the right soil, the soil Jesus would have it spring from, which is the very thing he concludes with here. So Jesus calls his disciples to walk a hard path, one of suffering and service. The last will be first and the first last. And that goes against everything natural in us. That's hard. That's almost too hard. Like, Jesus, really? It's almost crushing. But Jesus concludes with the one thing that changes absolutely everything. He gives us the why and the how, the purpose and the power for us to walk the path that he walked. Verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is what Jesus came to do. To die. Not as a martyr for a lost cause. Not as a failed experiment in religion, but as a ransom for many. Brothers and sisters, this gets us to the very heart, the beating core of the gospel. The good news that Jesus came to serve up salvation for those in slavery to their sin. The metaphor here is that of a ransom, which comes from the first century slave trade. So we think, you know, ransom is like kidnapping or something like that. That's, that's the context we associate it with. That's, it's not what Jesus is thinking of. That's not its first century context. A ransom wasn't about kidnapping. It was about the price paid to set a slave free. There was a sacred ceremony among the Romans where... Uh, to free a slave, someone could pay the ransom price so that they were symbolically sold to a god. So you would, you would pay this to the shrine or whatever. So, that, so symbolically, that person who was formerly a slave now belongs to this god. It's a ceremonial way of saying, you belong to this god now, and so in regard to everything else, you're free. You will live free among all of us. And that's the gospel, that Jesus went to the cross to pay the price for our ransom. So we're not slaves anymore. He died to pay our debt, the infinite judgment our sin deserved, and to purchase us for God, a people for his own possession. So now, now we belong to him, and because we belong to him, we are free. That's the gospel, and if you believe it, if you follow this Jesus, you belong to him and you are free. 
Sin is no longer your master. Self is no longer your master. You have a good king now who gave himself for you. And because of that, because of that gospel, the cross is where all our self-exalting pride comes to die. You don't have to live the exhausting life of yourself at the center anymore. You don't have to constantly compare, constantly look to climb the next rung of the ladder, just always looking out for number one, worrying what people think, worrying if you've, you've done enough. If you're in Christ, the, the poison of pride just loses its allure because you found something far better than your own glory. Many of you know my affinity for Christian rap, especially the rapper Shylin. It's been a while, but we're back. He's got a song called I'm Hot. And the first two-thirds of this song are an excellent example of the kind of egocentric uh, self-aggrandizement we've been talking about. So this is, this, I'll just give you a taste. This is one verse from the song. This is what he says. He says, Some people can't stand me for the bragging that I do. But I'm asking you, is it really bragging if it's true? I got so many haters. I don't know who you are. Better recognize a true superstar. Yeah, there's other stars, but for real, I'm the only one. I'm on fire. I got my own emoji, son. I've been shot at many times, but the bullets never reach me. Everybody listening, you are all beneath me. My bars make you mad. Do you not like this? Don't be mad at me. God made me hot like this. Don't you just hate him? It's so annoying. It's so ugly. I mean, pride is hideous. I remember the first time I listened to the song, I was like, what is going on? I can't, this is like, ugh, it's just revolting. That's most of the song. And then at one point, there's a turn. And you realize he's been describing the sun the whole time, like the ball of fire in the sky. He's been describing the sun. And he says this, I drop heat and flames. And compared to me, you're lame. But I would never be the same once the Lord Jesus came. Yeah, it's true. I'm the son of man. But the coming of the true Son of Man helped me understand. At his birth, God's unfolding plan revealed. With his hand of skill, I watched the stars stand still. He came to address fallen man's situation. His face was like mine at the transfiguration. I thought I was strong, but I had never seen power to the cross when I went straight dark for three hours. When he reached the crypt, bragging ceased from my lips, because when Jesus flipped the script, I got completely eclipsed. Our vain attempts at self-glory are all completely eclipsed by one stunning reality. The God of the universe dying on a cross, paying our ransom, ultimate suffering and ultimate glory. Any song we could make to praise our own, uh, to exalt our own selves, praise our own name, will perish. And one song will be sung for eternity. Revelation 5. They sing to the Lamb, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood 
You ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's the song that will last. That's the glory that will last. But don't miss why Jesus brings this up in Matthew 20. He's not just teaching about the doctrine of the cross, as wonderful and glorious as it is. No, he's making a point. We are called to serve one another even as, even as, just like, in the same way that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the ethic of the gospel. Every Christian is called to live a cross-shaped life. Why? Not just because serving one another is a nice thing to do, although it is. Not just because suffering it produces endurance and character in us, although it does. We serve and we suffer in the path of obedience because we've been served by the suffering of the King of Kings. The gospel is both what saves us and what teaches us how to live in response. It is the message of our redemption and the charter for our obedience. Why should we forgive? Matthew 19, because Jesus forgave us an infinite debt. Why should we be generous? 2 Corinthians 8, because Jesus embraced poverty to lavish us with the riches of his grace. Why should we be humble? Philippians 2, which Jared read as our call to worship, because Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. In the same way, we suffer hardship and we serve one another because the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for us. The cross charts the path and it supplies the power for us to walk it. It would be impossible totally impossible for us to walk the path of Christ's disciples if Christ did not walk it first. But his suffering ended in resurrection glory, and so ours will too. See, it's not that glory is the wrong thing to want. It's that we as sinners always want it in the wrong way. Shai Lin ends that song about the sun I'm hot. He ends it with these words. Thought I was legendary, but my lesson's scary. Because in heaven, hear me, I'll no longer be necessary. Repent and humble yourself. And in time, you'll see in the kingdom of your father, you will shine like me. The humility of Christ is our path to glory. And it's only when we're united with him. In the next chapter, Matthew 21, we'll find the closest thing in Jesus' life to the Roman triumph, this victory procession, commonly known as the triumphal entry. But there won't be any of that proud self-exaltation. We will just find a humble man riding on a donkey. And there will be no one whispering memento mori in his ears because he didn't have to remember he was mortal. In fact, it was the very reason he came. He was immortal. And he took on mortality because it was a necessary precondition for his mission where he would die. 
It was less a triumphal procession and more a funeral march. But one day, many years later, one of the two men we met in this very passage, John, the son of Zebedee, who's exiled for his allegiance to Jesus, had a vision, Revelation 19, and in that vision, he saw Jesus, not on a donkey, but on a white stallion, arriving in victorious conquest over sin and Satan and death and all the enemies of God. And with him, John saw riders on white horses coming with the Lamb, sharing in his glory. And for all those in Christ, that is our destiny. That's what's coming. There will be glory and victory and white horses and triumph. But for now, while we wait, ride a donkey. Live in the humble giving of yourself as he did. And wait for glory. Let's pray. Christ, your promises are wonderful, almost too wonderful for us to wrap our minds around. And yet we know because you are the one who has made them, and you have shown us even in this passage several of your promises that came true, we look forward, we long for, and we hope in that day when we will be next to you in glory And I pray, God, as we walk the path to that day, we would never lose sight of the end, but we would not forget that every step of that path will be difficult, that sometimes will be easier than others, but there will always be hardship and suffering and pain and opposition as we walk the path of Jesus. And God, I pray that you would help us to do that with great faith and faithfulness looking ahead to our King and our reward. You are faithful and you will see it through. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.